There are occasions in each of our lives when we find ourselves in the presence of greatness. Those are rare, inspiring moments. Greatness reminds me of the tide in the harbor that raises all the other boats when it rises. You, you, you want to t stand taller. You, you want to live better when you find yourself around greatness. You also realize because that experience is rare, you, you want to drink it in. You want to capture some of it for yourself, if that's at all possible. For you realize the depth of the character and the, and the breadth of that influence so significant that by being around it, you'll never be quite the same. I remember back many, many years ago, I was probably 12, 13 years old, on my way out the back door of our home to play sandlot football, as I often did in the afternoon after doing my chores. And my mother stopped me. She was at the sink there in the kitchen, and and uh, she said, come here, Charles, I, I, I have a verse I want to share with you. And uh, I, I, I confess to you, I wasn't really in a mood for a verse. And uh, her verse often became a devotional. And I really wasn't in any mood for that. I should have been, but I wasn't. And she had placed the verse that she was referring to uh, on, on the wall in front of her at the sink. And she said, this, this verse is for you, son. I, I'm claiming it for you. I said, well, that, that's great, Mom. I'm, I'm glad it means a lot to you. She says, I want you to take this seriously. And then she quoted it without looking at it. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. She said to me, it's, it's from the ancient Proverbs, but it's for you. And I'm claiming it for you one day. Years, years passed. I lost her. She was young and passed into the Lord's presence. But that verse never left me. As a matter of fact, it uh, came back to me when I was sitting in a classroom at Dallas Seminary as a first-year student, of all things, they had approved my coming as a student, and I'm sitting there in this enviable place in front of greatness. And the list of those great professors could go on and on, there were about 15, 16 of them on the faculty when I was there. Men like Bruce Waltke, J. Dwight Pentecost, Merrill Unger, Charles Ryrie, S. Lewis Johnson, 
Stanley Toussaint, Howard Hendricks, Grant Howard, John Walbert, Don Campbell, Earl Rodmacher. And there were visiting Bible teachers like Ray Stedman, J. Vernon McGee, Charles Woodbridge, John Mitchell. Cynthia and I would go in the evening to hear Dr. Mitchell, this walking Bible, as he would deliver his message in the Chapel was packed those evenings. And I remember thinking we're in the presence of a giant. It's greatness personified standing before us. Not a scandal among them. Not a lazy bone in their bodies. Great intellect. Incredible pedagogy and the ability to deliver one lesson after another after another from the text, whether in English or Greek or Hebrew or whatever may be the need. I often found myself spellbound, staying even after the bell rang and the students were leaving, thinking, my mother's Verse for me is come alive. I'm before great men. Time passed. I was involved in ministry. And one of my assignments during the passing of time was going to Washington, D.C. and regions near there and ministering to great lives from the Pentagon, flag officers, admirals, generals, colonels, lieutenant colonels, men and women alike who had fought battles and won victories and guarded our freedom, been all around the world of all things listening to me set forth the scriptures, taking notes of all things, and I remembered my mother's words again, that God would bring me before great men. Sitting on the board for several years at Dallas Seminary, I remember looking across the room at the different faces, and there sat Coach Tom Landry. What a privilege to know him. One of those men that the better you knew him, the greater you respected him. Greatness personified, soft-spoken. And when he did speak, it was like E.F. Hutton. Everybody leaned toward him. When he chose a table at lunch, several of us clamored for sitting near him. Maybe some of it would rub off. I realized after he had passed, not had a part in his funeral and, and been around the men who had built the championship teams. What a great man. And I also realized I really had never been a Cowboys fan. I'd been a Landry fan until J.J. and the Clowns sent him on his way and they took the team in another direction. It's fine, but it's not the same. 
without greatness. Because when you are in the presence of greatness, you are in awe of God's hand on a life. I remember Richard Sumi leading us in hymns in the chapel with tears in his eyes and ours as he would go over the words of the hymn and help us grasp what we were singing. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow. His head with radiant glory's crown, his lips with grace or flow. His lips with grace or flow. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me. And on and on he would go. Greatness personified. What a privilege. You walk your way through Scripture and you come across a few, not all, but some are in that category. Stephen is one. And you'll miss him if you're in a hurry to read through Acts. His entire biography is just two chapters. His mother must have seen greatness in him because she named him Stephanos, Greek for crown. The term was used for the crown that was placed on the head of a of a great civic or national leader. But most significantly, it represented the wreath or the crown that was placed on the, on the head of an Olympic champion, one who won the gold in the game in ancient days. Stephanos. Perhaps she said to him as a little boy, one day, one day, son, you'll stand tall and you must stand alone. And indeed he did. If you read his biography, you'll notice that he's a man who was full of grace and power, grace. We use it often and don't pause to think of what it means. We understand the meaning of God's grace. Unmerited favor which he extends, which we do not deserve, cannot earn, and are never able to repay. For by grace we are saved through faith in that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any one of us should boast. Grace from God. Love that reaches up is adoration. Love that reaches out is affection, but love that stoops. That's grace. Not an original with me. Those are the words of Donald Barnhouse. Love that stoops. Is grace. But this is grace in the life of a human being. He's far beyond that of a civic leader or an Olympic champion. He's a spiritual giant. 
And he emerges virtually out of nowhere and comes on the scene to appear before an audience that despises him. But he's full of grace and power. Grace. When it's used of an individual, the background is interesting. It represents that which is charming, beautiful, elegant, lovely. All things that represented Stephen. When you were around him, as I said earlier, when I was around Landry, you just felt the presence. And also a man of power, power in words, as we're going to see, and power in perseverance against all odds. As a hostile mob stood before him with their fists clenched, ready to pick up stones to kill him. Chances are good you've never been before an audience that hostile. I've been before hostile audiences, never that hostile. Stephen went right on. He lived like Christ. He preached like Christ. And as we'll see, he died like Christ. In fact, his accusers looked at him and realized he had the face of an angel. I've never seen an angel, and I get concerned about those who see a lot of angels. But they saw one that day in the face of Stephanos. Unmoved by their hatred, unperturbed by their lies, knowing he was in an uphill climb just to keep their attention, he sets forth his message when he's given the opportunity, and he does so without one written note. These accusers happen to be the Sanhedrin. May mean nothing to you, but they were the Supreme Court of the Jews. Seventy otherwise distinguished men of aristocracy, most of them wealthy, several of them Sadducees. And he delivered a message in the words of Kent Hughes, That was the most amazing and most potent sermon ever preached before a hostile audience. They couldn't stand it, and he wouldn't stop. If you read Acts chapter 7 and really read it, you will see that he covers the waterfront of Jewish history in the Old Testament. He goes from early on in their history all the way through to the very moment where they stood. 
condemned by his accusation, you murdered the one whom God sent to be the Savior. In the power of the Holy Spirit, he set forth this solid exposition of the scriptures. Again, without a note. Extemporaneously, having had no time to prepare, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, it comes pouring out of him. And they didn't know what to do with wisdom like that. The hostile crowd never does. So they rely on brute force to silence it. What admiration we have for this man who delivered such stinging, penetrating words to those who are shaking their fists, answering back, yelling at him, clasping their ears with their hands, and on he goes right through his message. You may not want to listen, but you need to hear what God is leading me to say to each one of you. Listen to his conclusion. Listen to these words. Imagine a preacher standing before a congregation saying these words. You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and death to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors did not persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. At that point, it stopped because they'd heard enough powerful preaching from the heart of greatness. And I will tell you, having had a similar experience on a few occasions, when you are delivering a message like that, you hardly know your own name. The Spirit of God is igniting the words he is guiding you and influencing your thoughts and you are pressing through it under his full control. It's a magnificent moment. To him goes all the glory for those moments. Stephen is not worried one whit about what his future held. He knew it wasn't for long. And so they decided this is time. He has accused us of being the one who murdered Christ. And he's in fact telling us he's 
come back. In fact, in the middle of their shouting at him, he says, look, look, look. I see him standing, standing at God's right hand. You thought you put an end to him. God raised him from death to life. He is alive. He is at work. They couldn't stand it. They were infuriated, the text states. In a fit of rage, brimming with violence, the court becomes not an aristocratic group of judges, but an out-of-control mob. They tear their garments from their upper bodies and toss them in the hands of Saul, yep, Saul of Tarsus, who is approving of everything he is witnessing. Not yet old enough to be among the Sanhedrin, he's standing there, perhaps just come from a class with Gamaliel, and the garments of all of these accusers at his feet And don't think he ever forgot it. On that road to Damascus, when the Lord stops him, he says, who are you, sir? I'm the Lord whom you persecuted, whom you are persecuting. When was that? Here it is. Here is an example. You persecute a man of God, you persecute the work of God. And this man of grace and power under the control of the Holy Spirit has the temerity to say to his hostile audience, I'm I'm looking at the Savior right now. Normally, as you remember, Jesus is portrayed as sitting at the seat uh, at the right hand of the Father But now he's standing as if with open arms saying, welcome home, son. Come on home. The rewards await you. It's a beautiful moment for Stephen, but it's more than they could stand. And now they become... Subhuman as they attack. Though the execution is unfair and brutal and, and, and illegal and immoral, they do not care. Of all things, this court that is supposed to be a court of judges becomes a court of animals. And like the Nazis who took Bonhoeffer and hanged him on the 9th of April, 1945. Shortly before the the liberation of the camp that he's been held in, 
they take Stephen and they drag him out of the city. I think I could speak for every one of us. We've never been dragged by a mob out of a city. Probably took him near a precipice, pushed him over it, and then the rocks and stones began. Can't imagine. I've never witnessed a stoning, thank the Lord. Must be brutal beyond words. Stephen falls to his knees and shouts, Lord, don't charge this to them. Don't charge the sin against them, just like Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And with that, he died. Even the great ones die. And we're left. We're left in their wake. Which brings me to the point I want to make to all of us. My challenge is that we pursue a life of greatness. That we set our aims high. That we don't do just enough to get by, but we excel. We make excellence our goal. Right now, I have the joy of mentoring two of my grandsons who are both young adults. And uh, yesterday, we were together three hours. I loved it. And uh, they are loving it. We're sitting in our family room, and I got on the subject of fathering. We're, We're working through my book on David, and and we, we were seeing that David is now on his own. In the sixth chapter of the book, I talk about every crutch is removed from David's life. and He has no family around him. You ever thought about that from the time he went to kill the giant till the end of his life? Never once is his father mentioned or even his brothers beyond the giant killing. Family's not around. Never do we know anything about his mother. Uh, Some believe he was an illegitimate, which is why he was left with the sheep and not even remembered by Jesse when Samuel came to choose the king. He said to Jesse, are these all your sons? And Jesse, the father, says, "Uh, no, no, I have one more, but he's with the sheep. Why would he say that? Why would he refer to David like that? Bear with me. Could it be that David was an outlier? Seen by the family as sort of an outcast? And when he, when he wins the throne, where, where are they at the inauguration? Nowhere to be found. So I say to my grandsons, 
Fathering is one of the greatest callings on earth. And men, I challenge you to make fathering one of your goals. I mean great fathering. I look through the scriptures and I look almost in vain to find great fathers. Where are they? Adam wasn't. Abraham wasn't. Isaac wasn't. Esau, Jacob, they weren't. Often if they have a family, you don't know much about their children. If you do, you're disappointed. David had 17 wives. What's he doing with that many wives, not to mention the concubines? Poor father, great man, great leader, great warrior, bad father. So I said to my boys, time for a change. Set your goal high. If you plan to marry and, and, and you have a family, place an emphasis on fathering those children well. You'll be the only one they have. And we talked at length about it, what's involved with it. They just, they just drank it in. I mean, it, it was a, that was greatness with those two young men. I mean, that's, that's my legacy. They go on beyond me. Stephen dies. We needed Stephen for more years. Now, I, I must say to all of us, we do not know what tomorrow holds. I know it's a cliche, but it's true. Terrorists pour over the southern border every day. We don't know what they're up to, but it's not good. We don't know when there will be another attack, but there will be one. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I just listen to the news when I can bear it. And I think, Lord, give us the guts to stand strong when they come after us. We're not only in this era, we're Christians. We're marked people in this culture. Don't run scared. Stand tall. Don't be afraid to be known as one. I'll tell you, your Savior is with you, as he was with Stephen. You can't hear him, you can't see him, but he's there. And he will stay there. I was reading the last stanza of how firm a foundation this past week as I was preaching to myself in my study. I mean, I was all over the study going over Stephen's message. Man, I, I, I banged that baby out loud, strong. Cynthia's probably downstairs going, enough, enough. 
But not that, that is a sermon. And I came to that stanza. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned, on, hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. As the Lord saying to us, I'm with you always. Even when they stone you. Or stab you. Or take your family from you. God forbid. These are dreadful times. But they're not impossible. With God, all things are possible. He will see us through. And he longs for us to step out of the ranks of the mediocre. Stop being afraid to be counted. Stop worrying about whether people like you. Stop caring whether you are in the majority. Arnold Toynbee was right. It's doubtful the majority's ever been right. In today's government, he certainly is true. I'm not a political kind of speaker. You who know me know that. But I'll tell you, it's time for the Christian to stand strong. Stand up. Stand tall. Be great. Great. And, and the only reason you can't is you don't have a Savior. You've never come to the cross. Before there's greatness, there's got to be humility. Or you bow before him and make him the master. Then you earn the right to hear his voice and receive his grace and let him use you. Greatness isn't limited to the Tom Landrys or the Bruce Walkies or the Charles Rowries or the no ones you could name that have crossed your path. But you will be one of them and by being one of them you will be the one that others look up to and realize you make me stand taller. And because of you, I can go on. I left the halls of the seminary to begin over 60 years of ministry, and I still remember, I still remember some of those classrooms, some of those great men. They're all dead now. They're all gone. They live in my memory. The man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Same for women, 
Same for you ladies. You're the mother of the family. Step up. Stand firm. Be careful that you don't get so engaged in your career that you forgot you've got little ones around you needing your touch, your hand. As Lincoln put it, no one is poor who has had a godly mother. God help us all. God help us all. Dear Father, today we, we acknowledge that we need you and we long, long to walk with you like Stephen. Not every moment will be like this one, but some will be. Some talks around the supper table will be just as significant. Some moments just with our own will be unforgettable moments that our children will never forget. Oh, God, remind us of that, that they might become the great ones of the future. Now to him who is able to guard you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power forever and ever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.